0: I met Rabbi Avra Milotek three summers ago when we were both working as chaplain interns in hospice units. Now, he and I, we became very close really quickly. We felt a certain kinship of perspective and faith. He was stationed at Fort Carpus in Brooklyn, and I was in the Bronx. It was unusual to get a call while we were on shifts And so one day when the call came from Avram in the midst of our work, I found a corner, and I picked up his call. He was agitated, really, really upset. I asked what was going on. He had just left the room, as it turns out, of a 56-year-old woman who was dying from lung cancer. Now, from just this part of the description alone, I couldn't understand why this particular conversation had rattled him so, more than all the others we had during the day. But the more that we talked, the more I understood. Mrs. Schwartz could not speak anymore, and she'd become paralyzed from the waist down as the cancer had progressed. She wrote down her thoughts on a whiteboard. So unprompted on this day, Mrs. Schwartz wrote this message. There's so much I don't understand. I just want to get out of the bed. If I could get out of the bed, I can't believe I can't walk. I have two kids, teenagers. My son is a total mensch. My daughter is 15. She needs a mom. She cried as she wrote the rest. I just want to release them, but I can't. I had such a good year, made full professor, published two books, boom, boom, and then this. I hate lying in bed. It drives me crazy. I used to be strong as an ox. Now, she paused and soon after wrote this question to Avram. Could you fill up my water? Avram couldn't guarantee A mother to a 15-year-old daughter. He couldn't restore her ability to walk or to talk, to be productive or even to turn back time. He couldn't stop her mind from churning, even as her body was degenerating. He could do almost nothing for her, next to nothing for her, but not nothing. He could fill her cup, with cool water. He was furious that this was all he could do. He screamed, he cried, and I remember crying on the phone along with him. We cried for Mrs. Schwartz. We cried for her kids. I cried for my friend and his feeling of utter helplessness. But I also remember, in the midst of those tears and in shared anger, that this story from today's gospel popped into my heart and came out of my mouth. I explained that we had this sacred story that explains to us, it teaches us to embody the love and the welcome of God through very simple acts of hospitality. I told Avram that it was my understanding, it was my faith belief that when a person offers a cup of cold water to the one who desperately needs it, God is revealed. A cup of cold water is sometimes the very thing that is needed. And Avram, on that day, gave Mrs. Schwartz what she needed. Now, Avram and I learned together on that day and in the conversation afterwards that, well, we were just wrong about what we thought chaplains were going to do. We were totally wrong. We were beginners, right? And so we thought we were going to be the holy people of the hospice. We thought we were going to be, you know, singing hymns and praying prayers and offering blessings and sometimes even perhaps quoting scripture. Now, we did do those things. But we did these other things that didn't look very chaplainy at all. We fetched water, straightened sheets, held hands, changed the TV channel, cracked jokes, talked baseball, sang Sinatra, brought candy bars, described the sunset, laughed, and cried. Now these things we learned may not look like. Holy actions. But each one broke open this distance, provided a chance, just a chance to really connect, and made room for God to show up. Each action carried a prayer and created a blessing. And each one made God's love manifest. Matthew in his gospel, makes the case over and over again that the only way to follow Jesus is to do so in community. He alone among the gospelers addresses the ecclesia, the church community. Matthew makes sure that we see Jesus describing how holy community should look, how it should be ordered, how it should act and be carried out. Now, this scripture passage, it's just a teeny tiny piece of this larger set of instructions given by Jesus to the disciples. And he isn't just going to send them forth on that great commission to go and make disciples spread the good news. He's not going to leave it at that. Matthew's Jesus, well, he's a teacher. Right from the start, he's teaching. He teaches, and then he does what he just taught. This is his pattern. He shows his students what discipleship is all about. So he prepares them how to do church, how to be church. And not one bit of his instruction can be passive. Not one bit can be attempted at a distance, can be carried out in isolation. Not one bit. In fact, it's filled with bold and brave action words. Listen to this. Go, he tells them. Teach, preach, heal, cast out, cleanse, and raise up. Each instruction is imperative. Each instruction creates this opportunity for encounter. One person meeting another person. Jesus' good news is not theoretical. And it's not performative. It's found through in-your-face, handshakingly close encounters with folks, with, as it turns out, the divine Now, Matthew builds on this Genesis claim that we heard earlier read by Barry. We see Abraham and Sarah, right? And they're out in this tent on a super hot day. We know what that feels like. And they're doing this regular day thing. And who should walk up to their tent but these three strangers? Three unknowns. What did they do? What would you do? I have to admit, like Jonathan suggested, that I would scream out, Stranger Danger! And I would zip my tent. I would. I would. But the biblical example is there for us to be challenged. Abraham welcomes the unknown in. And what was once outside becomes welcome inside, and it becomes known. That knowing is only possible with intention, and with time. There's a lot that we see Abraham and Sarah do for those strangers. They give them water for a bath, a place to rest, bread to eat, and only after all that, they start to prepare a feast so that they can eat. This is no fast food encounter. It's not a drive-through experience of grace. This is real, engaged faith. And as we know, and Abraham and Sarah, you know, learn afterwards, these strangers are messengers of the Lord. They're agents of God. And here we see in this story what the writer of Hebrews would way later write about. You know that really famous saying, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus takes it further. He doesn't think, hey, you might meet an angel one day. No. No. He says, you will meet Christ. You will meet Christ. Christ. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. You won't meet angels, you'll meet Christ, and you'll be Christ to someone else. When you offer a cup of cold water to the little ones, to the least of these, you will encounter Christ. I think for a moment we have to consider the inverse of that statement. It demands attention. And in it, I think, is even greater wisdom, perhaps, than the call to action itself. If you do not offer a cup of water to the little ones when it is needed, you will not meet Christ. To Kill a Mockingbird is a pretty important book to me, as it is to many It's the book that kind of woke me up to the world of literature, to my calling, to the understanding of my southern home. It was the basis of my thesis when I got my master's of ed, and I taught it to more than 600 Bronx high school students in my time in the classroom. So yeah, I like it a lot. One particular character, though has always held my heart, and he didn't make the cut of the film, so people often forget about him. But when I read today's scripture, he came to mind. Mr. Dolphus Raymond is a man in the fictional community of Maycomb, Alabama. And we learn from the reaction of the kids of the novel, Scout, Jim, and Dill, that Mr. Raymond is a known evil man. He does certain things, well, they just can't be understood. And he does other things that can definitely be understood and cause him to be exiled from the white community of that really small town. He, a white man, is married to a black woman. And they have kids. And he lives with his family in the black section of town. But he's also a known drunk. And he carries around this bottle wrapped in a brown paper bag and is often seen kind of listing through town, sipping, from a straw poked out of it. You got him in your mind? Okay. The kids run into Mr. Raymond accidentally during the trial of Tom Robinson, a black man falsely accused of a crime against a white woman. They break for lunch, and Jim runs outside. He's literally sickened by the reality of white supremacy and what he has just, for the first time in his life, witnessed. He is choking He's crying. He's sick to his stomach, and he can't catch his breath. And so Mr. Raymond comes over and offers him the paper bag-wrapped bottle. Now Jim drinks deeply, expecting whiskey, right? But he's going to obey what the adult says. And the drink does settle his stomach and his spirit somewhat. So Scout and Dill are watching on like, what? And then... It turns out, it's not whiskey. It's just Coca-Cola. Jim asks, why does he pretend? Why does he let folks think he's drunk when he's no such thing? Mr. Raymond explains. It's very simple. Some folks, well, they just don't like the way I live. Now, I could say, the hell with them. I don't care if they don't like it. I actually do say, I don't care if they don't like it, but I don't say the hell with them. I try to give them a reason. You see? It helps if they can latch onto a reason. You see, they could never, never understand that I live like I do because it's the way I want to live. Dill can't see why he lets them kids in on this secret on his real truth so he asks why raymond points to jim who's crying and he says things haven't caught up with that one's instinct yet let him get a little older and he won't get sick and cry maybe things will strike him as being not quite right say but he won't cry not when he gets a few years on him He won't cry about the simple hell people give other people without even thinking. The cup offered here contains more than Coca-Cola. It holds truth. It holds wisdom. And Jim could not have gotten it if he hadn't gotten close enough to taste it. And Mr. Raymond turns from this evil man and to a man beleaguered and worn down by a community that casts him out. But he is a man worth knowing, and he is a man worth listening to. Christ comes again for us with each encounter that we allow ourselves to enter into. It's a revelation, honestly, to hit the spiritual zenith to see the embodied Christ in front of our own faces, all we've got to do is look into the face of the other, the stranger, the littlest of these. Christ is present when we slow down, see the personhood in each face that we meet, and give of ourselves as we are called to do. Barbara Brown Taylor writes about cultivating the practice of encounter. She explains, The hardest spiritual work in the world is to love the neighbor as the self, to encounter another human being, not as someone you can use, change, fix, help, save, enroll, convince, or control but simply as someone who can spring you from the prison of yourself if you will allow it. All you have to do is recognize another you out there, your other self in the world, for whom you may care as instinctively as you care for yourself, to offer a cup Filled to the brim with authentic, engaged love. We have to get close. We have to unzip our tents. We have to get outside ourselves. But we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that we alone will be the holders of that cup. We are thirsty, too. And as much as we are called to be Christ for others, we are also sent forth to encounter Christ in others. So may we endeavor to welcome and be welcomed, to see and be seen, to love and be loved, because Jesus, as it turns out, is waiting in each encounter.